Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. There are always going to be things to iron out. There's never going to be, I mean, when you do an episode that's 40 to 60 minutes long, I mean, you can't cover every single aspect uh, of any topic, really. And like I said, we've done three episodes so far, I think, three or four, three. Uh, The fourth one will be next Monday. And it feels like we've barely even scratched the surface on what the law is, what the law of Moses is, the law of Christ, uh, how we're supposed to be viewing it. So, I mean, there really is a lot to this. We could probably do 100 episodes and still not be completely satisfied. But all that to say, that's why I love uh, getting questions and clarifying questions and even disagreements because we're all here to try to figure out the truth, I hope. So it's it's helpful to be able to think through these things and to see other views and to kind of uh, go back and forth. And of course, it's different when you're watching a debate or something like that. But even then, when you watch a debate, it's like sometimes it's just whoever has the best one-liners, uh, whoever may be prepared more than the other person. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the person who quote-unquote wins the debate is actually right overall. Sometimes the other person may just not have been a good uh, debater. But anyway, we have some really good questions. Uh, and so before we get into these, if you have a question for next month, you can send it right now, anytime before the last Friday of the month. Uh, today, I'm, I'm one day early and six days late at the same time. So next month, it's going to be on the last Friday of the month. Uh, send in your questions now to information at apologetics.org. I know sometimes... Uh, people don't feel like typing up an email. I usually don't, but uh, eventually we'll have another way to do this. We're talking about some social media stuff and a whole bunch of other uh, huge things that are coming up in the ministry, which is now Apologetics Inc., by the way, no longer the C.S. Lewis Society. The C.S. Lewis Society is part of Apologetics Inc., but this ministry as a whole that the universe next door is a part of is now Apologetics Inc. So there's a ton of new stuff happening. We're going to have a ton of new, new additions and stuff like that with the universe next door. So it's going to keep getting better and better, more and more exciting. But uh, if you have a question, just go through the awful burden of typing an email and sending it to information at apologetics.org. That's the best way to do that. And just make sure you send it before the end of the month so it'll get answered. Uh, And also hit follow if you haven't uh, done that yet. Wherever you're listening, there should be some kind of follow or subscribe button. Hit that button because then you'll you'll be notified of new episodes coming out, which aren't always on Monday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern time. That's generally when they are. Uh, But we also release content other times, like right now, for example. And we're going to have probably a couple things coming up over the next two or three months that uh, we might release some extra content on a Thursday or Friday. Um, that's, That's more than likely to happen to help keep series a little bit more shorter and concise. So just make sure you hit follow. And thank you so much uh, to those of you who have been following the show for a while. It is awesome to be able to do this. Uh, So thank you for being part of it. So the first question we have, uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, the Bible provides a process for resolving conflicts between Christians and the church. 
Should the church be implementing this process to resolve marital conflicts today? Conflicts involving non-marital, complex business, industrial, and property issues would probably be beyond the ability of a typical church uh, to deal with and would have to be referred to the civil court system. Do you think that implementing this process in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, which we'll read, uh, would reduce the embarrassingly large number of Christian divorces? Do you know of any churches that are implementing this process? Thank you for any help you can provide on this issue. Um, So the first thing we'll do is we'll go to 1 Corinthians 6. This is actually a very, very uh, important chapter, and I can give you a practical example of something going on in this chapter that I've been dealing with recently, uh, not not personally, but that I've been trying to sort of call out and get to the bottom of. But uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, because this is actually an important chapter. You're also going to see a divine counsel passage, uh, which is also always exciting to me. They're all over the place, by the way. Uh, but let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1, and then we'll go sort of summarize a question again. Uh, Paul says, If any of you has a dispute with another... Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So we'll stop there. I read two verses further so you can get some more context. Um, But the question is basically... If we, uh, if we follow this pattern that's instructed here in churches, do you think there would be less divorces um, or less, or, or is it a better way to, to resolve marital conflicts if I get the question right? And you mentioned that there are things that have to sort of go outside of the scope of church authority or church leadership. Uh, you mentioned complex business issues, property issues, stuff like that. Um, I would agree with that. And actually, I would go a step further. For, well, maybe not a step further, just a step to the side, because you didn't obviously you didn't list everything you could think of. But another thing that you have to go outside the authority and leadership of the church for is, let's say there was some kind of sexual abuse. Uh, let's say there was a serious threat of suicide. So not just somebody saying, oh, man, I want to kill myself, like, you know, like a throwaway comment. But if somebody actually seems like I've been contemplating suicide and have some sort of means to do it, you have to go to the civil authorities. You have to talk to a psychologist, a police officer, whoever it may be. Um, talk to your pastor and he should know what to do with that if you're, if you're underneath a pastor. Uh, but you have to go to somebody outside the church. That's beyond the scope of the church. It's the same thing with, with any kind of sexual abuse. And, and obviously these two are two terrible examples, but they're things that happen in reality. They're things that happen in any kind of organization, uh, and that doesn't exclude churches. So if there's any kind of sexual abuse or anything like that, you also have to go outside the church. That's not something that you can have your elders or deacons sit down and talk about and handle with the person. That's a legal issue where you'd have to go outside uh, of church authority. And, um, So with that being said, yes, I think that this should be implemented in churches. I think that Christians need to try their best to use their own wisdom to judge um, conflicts within the church, within people within the church that aren't uh, legal 
legal issues that have to be dealt with by the civil authorities. I think we do definitely need to strive at this. Um, I think there are probably a lot of churches doing this. I like to think that mine strives to do that. I, I, uh, I'm on staff. I'm a pastor at Countryside Baptist Church in Clearwater, Florida. But um, yeah, I would hope plenty of churches are doing this. Paul actually starts 1 Corinthians with two chapters talking about wisdom. He describes the wisdom of uh, the godly, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit versus the quote-unquote wisdom of the world. And so he contrasts how we're supposed to live versus how the world is supposed to live. And I think he does this so that he can kind of set the foundation for the whole rest of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Because now he's appealing back to that and saying, listen, we have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We do not need to have uh, pagans judge one another. And there's actually a practical example of this that I've seen recently. I'm not part of it. I'm not involved in it. But from an outside perspective, I've been trying to speak to it and and get people to admit what they're doing and repent of it because it hasn't been happening. Uh, But there's an organization called American Reformer. Uh, An American Reformer, you you may have heard of American Reformer. You may have heard of New Founding. These are are related organizations. Um, But American Reformer recently uh, sent a cease and desist a uh, letter to a guy named Jake, I forget how to say his last name, Meteor, Meteor, something Mendier, I don't know, whatever his name is, uh, he, he basically called them out for associating with a guy who posts Nazi stuff on his Twitter. Uh, and when he called them out, they responded with a letter saying, if you don't take this down, we're going to sue you, basically. Or they didn't say we're going to sue you, they said we, we have the right to take further legal actions. Uh, and what I've been trying to suggest to these gentlemen is that Listen, if you're a Christian, you don't get to do that. Okay, you you can go and say no, that's wrong. You can't do that. You can you can take whatever means you want within Christian boundaries, but you don't get to go and threaten somebody with a lawsuit if you're claiming to be a Christian organization. Uh, you 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 have to follow church discipline. You have to follow Christian discipline, like we see in First Corinthians six. We can't just immediately appeal to the world. Uh, of course, I was blocked on Twitter for suggesting that, but ironically enough, there there was a situation a few years ago, if you remember David Platt's church um, splitting, I think it's um, uh, McLean Bible Church, I think, in, in Virginia, uh, they, they had a big split because David Platt and some of the elders were basically going against the church constitution and the church bylaws, and they were implementing their own sort of woke policies, uh, and so the church wasn't happy about that. They wanted to threaten with lawsuits because they didn't know where else to go, and some of these same guys uh, who were in this Christian nationalist camp and who have ties to American Reformer, they were going out and they were saying, no, no, you can't sue. Whatever you want to do, do it, okay? If you want to camp outside of David Platt's office, then do that. But you can't sue. You can't bring lawsuits into the church. And I agreed with that 100%. But now, when it's them on the line, when they're the ones in trouble, all of a sudden lawsuits among Christians are okay. So we have to be careful not to think hypocritically. We have to be careful not to, um, not to think that well, if it's me, I don't have to obey what the Bible says. I mean, 1 Corinthians 6 is clear here. Christians should not be appealing to um, pagan systems. They should not be bringing things into the court and that sort of thing when they're things that should be handled among brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, how does that look to the world when they see us arguing on Twitter about suing one another about, and don't even get me started on Twitter. That's not the only example here, but, um, but it doesn't look good to the world. And no, we're not doing things to please the world, but we are supposed to be all things to all people. We are supposed to be living as God calls us to live in order to draw people to him and in order to honor and glorify him. So um, that's a practical example of what I've seen in this sort of area just recently. 
but as far as if people followed this, would it reduce the number of divorces in the church? I would think so. I would hope so. But there are a lot of reasons people get divorced. I mean, if it's, um, let's say, adultery or something like that, well, the Bible actually gives grounds for divorcing in that case. Uh, if it is, let's say there's physical uh, abuse or even emotional abuse or whatever it may be, I still think that's something that a lot of the time a church should go uh, to the civil authorities outside of their own sphere, especially if it's physical abuse. Um, I don't think a church should be trying to to deal with that and sort it out completely themselves, especially if there's actually... Uh, if there's actually a good reason to believe that it's true. So there are certain things a church can do, and there are certain things where we have to hand it over to the civil authorities. But my, my answer would be, I hope, uh, I think that if we follow this practice, the church would look a whole lot better to the world. Uh, we would look a whole lot less divisive. We'd look a whole lot less quarrelsome. We'd, we'd probably look, uh, like Jesus said, you'll know you'll know who my disciples are by their love for one another. So I think we should strive in every way. And remember, in the same chapter, um, Paul says that, why are you bringing lawsuits? It would be better to be wronged. It would be better to be cheated. So he says that here. If, if you love your neighbor and love is the will to do good for others, okay, and you're willing to put them before yourself, then sometimes that means actually putting them before yourself and being wronged and suffering for it. So he says that here, it's better to be wronged. It's better to be cheated. And who's the one saying this? The guy who's been rejected by his own people, the guy who's been stoned, who's been shipwrecked, who's been bitten by snakes, who's, who's been dragged out of cities and beaten, all kinds of terrible things. But he does it because he loves his neighbor and he wants to see them come to Christ. And in Romans 9, he actually goes as far as to say, I would go to hell for the Jewish people, for my own people by ethnicity. I would go to hell for them if I could. Um, so I think that's how we're supposed to interpret conflicts. And I think if we did, it would probably make a lot of conflicts go a lot smoother. And I don't always do this, okay? Not to say I'm perfect. I don't. If my wife and I get into an argument, I don't run to the civil authorities. Uh, but I don't always handle everything perfectly. I, I'm not always as patient as I wish I was. I'm not always as thoughtful as I wish I was. But I noticed that what I am, when I obey Proverbs 15.6 and I say a gentle answer turns away wrath, and I actually do it, uh, things go a lot better. Things go a lot smoother because sometimes being patient, sometimes being loving, sometimes putting the other person before yourself is better than uh, at the end saying, I quote unquote, won the argument and now your marriage is a disaster. Okay, it's better It's better to put the other person before yourself and it's not always easy, but it's always right. Um, so as far as other churches who do that, I, I hope there are a lot of them. I hope your churches do this too. Um, but I uh, yeah, that's that's all I have to say in that. I hope it's helpful. Uh, last thing is when Paul says, do you not know that you'll judge angels? That's a divine counsel passage. You're going to judge angels. This is already not yet. Okay, you're going to replace the divine counsel. You are going to judge angels. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, I'll put it in the description below so you can check it out. We did, um, uh, we've done quite a bit on the divine counsel, but we did a couple episodes in a row uh, where you'll see a lot of this explained. But you are going to judge angels one day. Why not start practicing now? The second question is, how can I prepare to teach on heresies? Uh, what is the relationship between church history, heresies, and apologetics? Um, thank you for your question. I think that uh, it depends. I mean, I'd probably need more information, but it depends exactly on what your angle is to teach on heresies. I, I'm, Of course, I'm not a professor. I've never taught like a church history class. 
But I would suggest the book Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. Uh, what's so cool about this book is it's, I mean, of course, it's better to read it in chronological order because that's how it's written, but you don't have to. Whatever section you're studying or teaching on or whatever, you can read just that section and it reads perfectly fine. It, it, not everything has to be contingent upon one another in the book. So it's actually cool that if you're, you're let's say, looking at the Middle Ages, but you can read the section on the Middle Ages. If you're studying the Reformation, you can read the sections on the Reformation. If you're studying early church history, uh, let's say pre-Constantine, pre, uh, well, then you can read that section. So it's kind of cool the way it's laid out. I would recommend that. But what I would do is I would probably start by finding the most prominent heresies throughout church history, uh, why they came about and how they were handled. Because if you really want an understanding of heresies, and uh, and especially you'll, you'll actually find the more you study these that a lot of them are repeated today. Most of the heresy kind of stuff we see come up today, um, some of it I've talked about, it's actually usually just recycled. It's usually stuff we see all throughout church history, and studying church history would help us to understand this because we can see the way it kind of plays out and say, okay, now I see why they've come to this conclusion. But I'd start by searching through and looking at the most prominent, um, some of the most prominent heresies throughout church history. And a lot of them revolve around the nature, the person of Christ. Um, they revolve around the Trinity. And um, so I would start there. But that's a good book that I would recommend. Again, it just depends on what you're doing. But if you're talking about heresies throughout church history, I would start by finding the most prominent ones. And they start pretty early on. Uh, And when we get into the next question, actually, I'll touch on this a little bit now, too. But there was a whole list of books uh, from the very, very early church period, second and, and third centuries, called the Gnostic Gospels. And these Gnostic Gospels are fake Gospels. They're not real. Uh, They're not actually written by apostles or anything like that. They're written much later. But they contain all kinds of heresy uh, about Christ, about the apostles, about doctrine, and it's totally contradictory to doctrine. So um, that's that's one of the earlier places you can start that a lot of these heresies sort of came from and evolved from. You also have uh, heresies like Arianism, uh, where Arius taught that Jesus was God's first and greatest creation. Well, where do we see that now? We see it in Jehovah's Witness in in Mormonism. They both believe this same heresy, what, 1,500, 1,600 years later? 17, no, yeah, 16 and a half hundred years later, whatever it might be. Well, so the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons are still following this heresy, but you can see this all the way so far back in church history. So that's one of the reasons it can be incredibly helpful. Uh, If you'd like to email us um, with more detail, I would love to respond to that too and see what you're teaching about. But just broadly speaking, that's probably the advice I can give you on that. Uh, So good luck. Not literally, I don't believe in luck, but just as a friendly saying. Uh, Number three, hi, maybe for the following month, here is a question. Uh, Why are there so many different why are there so many differences in numbers in the original Hebrew Bible, the Catholic Bible, and the Protestant Bible? When uh, when we shouldn't add to the word or subtract to the word, is it just a matter of who is closest to the original? Uh, is there an agreeable original, that is? So your question is basically, why are there different Bibles? Let's say, for example, when you look at the Bible uh, Roman Catholics use, they include the Apocrypha. Uh, and when you look at the Bible most Protestants use. They don't include the Apocrypha. They have 66 books. And then, um, let me actually find, because you also sent a picture with this. Uh, I can't link the picture in the description, but I can use it to describe sort of what's going on here to those listening. 
but you included a couple pictures of what you're talking about because you you showed the Bible Roman Catholicism uses, um, you showed the Bible that Protestants generally use, and then you showed uh, from the Old Testament the the Jewish Tanakh, the Hebrew Tanakh, which is uh, which is also interesting. And there is a simple answer for that, but anyway, the uh, the list you gave it shows that the Roman Catholic Bible has 46, uh, the Jewish the Hebrew Old Testament, the Tanakh has 35, and then often, uh, let's say the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, all of the translations that you would probably get your hands on today have 39 books in the Old Testament. So you have 46, 35, and 39. Um, let's start with the the Hebrew and the Protestant, common Protestant Old Testaments. Uh, the reason is actually not that there are a different number of books. When you look at the um, Hebrew Bible, and then when you look at the English Protestant Bible most of us use today, uh, regardless of translation, you'll find 39, but then in the Hebrew, you'll find 35. The reason for this is that books like Chronicles uh, become first and second Chronicles in in the English Bible. Uh, books like Kings, in Hebrew, it's actually just the book of Kings. There's not two, first and second Kings. It's one long book, but it's broken into two. Um, and the same thing with Samuel. And the reason for this is probably because when they were translating the Bible into Greek for the Septuagint, uh, they they broke these into two because more than likely they wouldn't have fit on a scroll or whatever they had. Uh, so they had to break them into two. And that's why you get a difference between the Hebrew and our English Bibles, um, which, which a lot of it is taken from the Septuagint. Uh, or at least the divisions. And then you also have a different order. The The Hebrew Bible is is closer to chronological order, um, while the Old Testament that we use is broken into sections uh, based on law, history, poetry, major prophets, minor prophets. So um, they're also ordered differently, not incredibly differently, but they're ordered differently. But that's, that's the difference between those. They're actually the same text. Protestants, one of the differences... Um, between Protestants and some other people who kept the Apocrypha or uh, let's say people early on who thought the book of Enoch or the the first and second, third Enoch should have been inspired. One of the main differences is that um, the church said, well, we want to keep what the Hebrews, what the Jewish people considered to be inspired. And so that's what they did. Uh, but they're, they're actually the same. It's just different order. And um, those Samuel Kings and Chronicles are, are broken up into two books, but they're not different. They're the, they're the same. Now, the Roman Catholic Old Testament uh, that they hold to, they include the Apocrypha, and so that's why that's different. A lot of people think that Protestants came later and took the Apocrypha out, but that's actually not what happened. Uh, the, the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, following the Reformation, um, put the Apocrypha into the Roman Catholic canon. So Protestants didn't take it out. Protestants, most Protestants anyway, obviously that's a broad term. And I actually don't love the term Protestant because I, I, like I get it, but I don't wake up every day and think, okay, I'm protesting the Catholic Church. That's my theology. I just want to know what the Bible says. So I don't love the term, but I get it. I go with it. Um, but Protestants went with the Jewish canon the canon that the Jews considered inspired. And you have these apocryphal books, just like the Book of Enoch, which isn't part of the Apocrypha, but is uh, written around the same period. These are books that were written between the Old and New Testament. So you had several hundred years from the time Malachi was complete to the time John the Baptist came onto the scene, the next prophet. And between that time, uh, the Jewish people believed that the spirit of prophecy had departed from Israel for that period. So there are no inspired writings in that period. 
Protestants would agree with that. The early church seems to agree with that. Um, there were no inspired writings during that period, though they're helpful writings, though they're useful writings, though I think we should read a lot of this stuff because New Testament authors read this stuff, and you actually see it come out in the New Testament a lot. Um, and there are a few passages that I really don't think can be truly understood, uh, with at least in its fullness, without going back and reading Enoch, for example. So they are very helpful, but they're not inspired. They're not part. They shouldn't be part of the canon. So they they weren't original to the canon. They were added in at the Council of Trent. That was kind of the Catholic Church's version of their Reformation. And a lot of things did change, but uh, that's when they were brought in. So they weren't actually part of the canon. Uh, I hope that answers your question. I think that it's actually a pretty simple, um, a pretty simple issue that a lot of the time gets made into something more complicated. But that's pretty much all there is to it. Uh, next question: I thought your podcast about keeping the Sabbath. Oh, by the way, before I read this, uh, this this one's a little bit longer, and I do want to read the whole thing and respond to it because when somebody takes the time to type up a uh, respectful and well thought out response then I also want to take the time to respond to it. So that's what I'm going to do. This one's a longer question, uh, but it has a lot of detail. So I'm going to read the whole thing through and then I'll respond the best I can. So you say, I, th I thought your podcast about keeping the Sabbath was well done in spite of my disagreement with it. Usually I avoid podcasts on the subject because they often turn out to be a polemic against Sabbath keepers as if they are teaching salvation by works. I think your association with C.S. Lewis and the other interesting topics you discussed made me pause and listen, and I'm glad I did. I think you missed some important considerations about the Sabbath in your talk. The first is the obvious, obvious distinction between the many ceremonial Sabbaths in the Jewish calendar and the one Sabbath embedded in the middle of the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial Sabbaths uh, were recorded on scrolls kept on shelves, while the fourth commandment was recorded on stone and placed within the Holy Ark of the Covenant. That speaks to a significant difference between the annual Sabbaths and the weekly Sabbath. One is permanent, carved in stone, while the others were temporary, written only on scrolls. For the rest of my comments, I'll speak only about the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. You pose the question, are we still under the law that requires a Sabbath, or are we under the law of Christ? I think this presumes a separation that is not justified. The same law that requires Sabbath also forbids idolatry, lying, murder, and adultery. Being under the law of Christ does not excuse us uh, from the Sabbath command any more than it does for these other commandments. We probably agree that the law of Christ is more about having a converted heart and accepting Christ's righteousness for our own salvation instead of depending on any works or obedience of our own. But the law of Christ is not licensed for me to set aside God's Ten Commandments, even though my efforts to live by those commandments do not earn any credit for salvation. I especially liked your repeated statements that Jesus did not violate the Sabbath. Uh, so many preachers, when discussing the Sabbath, unwittingly take the side of the Pharisees and accuse Jesus of violating God's law. Agreed. Uh, you did not, and I was glad for that. I also thought the parallelism you identified of David fleeing persecution from uh, King Saul's dying dynasty being comparable to Jesus fleeing persecution from the legalistic religion of the Pharisees was wonderful, and I will surely share that with friends in the future. The weekly Sabbath is purported uh, properly seen as a reminder of God as our creator and as our deliverer from slavery, uh, from sin, and we agree that the true rest of God is the rest we have in Jesus, with freedom from the curse of our sins and the burden of trying to be good enough to be saved. But I think you overlook a significant aspect in the way that Jesus died on Friday, the preparation day, and rested on the Sabbath day. 
Just as God rested from his work of creating us, so Jesus also rested uh, from his great work of saving us. Therefore, in addition to creation and deliverance from slavery, in Jesus' death, the Sabbath gains the additional meaning of the new creation in deliverance from sin. Uh, and then this is the almost a Well, there's two more paragraphs here. Life in Jesus indeed is our true rest, as you said, but it is not something that dispenses with the weekly memorial that is the Sabbath day. Instead, it is a proper attitude that we carry into and through the Sabbath hours each week. In keeping Sabbath with our focus on Jesus, we rest from our works, both physically and spiritually, as Jesus rested from his. Uh, your comments about Christian worshiping on Sunday were quite different than I usually encounter. We agree that the Sabbath day was not transformed to Sunday, and that Christians today usually give the reason for Sunday meetings as an honor of Jesus' resurrection. But you referred to worship on Sunday as being the New Testament pattern. I don't think that's correct. When the apostles met on Sunday night after Jesus' resurrection, it was them hiding for fear of the Jews, uh, John twenty nineteen. Paul's meeting with believers in Acts 20 on the first day was likewise a night meeting. Paul preached until midnight because he was leaving the next day. These are not regular meetings on Sunday. Uh, the New Testament pattern was Christians meeting with one another in their homes daily and in the temple, but they also gathered regularly for worship on the Sabbath. The change of Christians' worship from the Sabbath to the first day was gradual over the next couple of centuries and due to more facts than I can discuss here. As far as honoring Jesus' resurrection, that is the reason often given, but there is no scripture support for it. Uh, God's word speaks only about the Sabbath as a day of worship. We remember Christ's resurrection by being baptized. The Bible even says that in the new earth, God's people will come before him in worship from one Sabbath to another. I'm a Protestant Christian who keeps the Sabbath day, although poorly I admit. Uh, my friends and I observe the seventh day as given in God's word from sunset to sunset, as do the Jews. It has been a great blessing, as are all of God's commands. I would never tell someone they have to keep the Sabbath to be saved, nor would I even hint that someone who worships on Sunday is any less of a Christian than I am. But we need to recognize that God does ask us to remember his Sabbath day, which is the seventh day. How we respond to his command is between each of us and God. I apologize for the length of this letter. I did listen attentively to your talk, and I felt like I had to respond to your invitation for comments and questions. I hope this comes in time for consideration during your session at the end of August. Um, well, again, thank you so much for the question, and uh, thank you for the well-thought-out question. I appreciate that it's longer and more well-thought-out, and I appreciate when people actually listen. I know sometimes it's like we might be driving or doing something or whatever. I get that. Um, not everybody has an hour to set aside uh, every Monday or whatever it is, but I appreciate that you actually listened to it and responded to it. Um, and I also wanted to be clear, just before getting into any detail, that I do think that... Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with what you're what you're doing, even if we disagree. I think it's a good thing that uh, number one, you think that the Sabbath pattern is helpful because I do too, and I'll get into that a little more in another question toward the end. Um, so I do think it's helpful. I do think that our brains need rest. I think we need rest. I think our families need rest and need to spend time together. Your family is your first ministry, uh, and so I actually think it's good that you keep a Sabbath on Saturday. Uh, and then I, I, I missed, maybe you said you worship on Saturday too. Maybe I, I can't, but either way, uh, I think it's good that you keep it on, on a, uh, Saturday. As far as worshiping on the first day of the week, I also appreciated that you didn't say that, um, somebody's lesser than you for worshiping on the first day of the week. Uh, I, and, and we agree that the Sabbath has not changed to Sunday regardless. I would say that I think that the pattern seems to be that, 
uh, they began worshiping on Sunday. And, and I would I can't think of any other reason other than the resurrection, though that's not necessarily stated explicitly. But there are a few uh, verses that do show that, number one, for a while Christians were doing a Saturday and Sunday thing, it seems like, because you have the passage I referenced in the Sabbath episode in Acts 4, um, where they are worshiping on, or no, Acts 2, where they are going and doing temple stuff on Saturday, but they're also meeting together on Sunday. So for example, in Acts 20, verse 7, uh, he says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So it does say there, the first day of the week uh, is when they met. And then you have in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put up something aside and store it up uh, as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. So even here in Corinth, you see that um, the believers seem to be having a meeting on Sundays. They have some kind of pattern of meeting uh, where they're taking money, where they're they're taking the offering that they're setting aside for Paul. Um, so, And then we have John in Revelation referring to being caught up in the Lord's Day uh, or on the Lord's Day when the, the Sabbath is never referred to as a Lord's Day in all of Scripture. So I think there is precedent for them beginning to meet on Sundays. Uh, and again, I, I think that it seems like the best guess would be that this is when Jesus raised from the dead, though I don't think that needs to be any sort of uh, dividing issue. And also, of course, Sunday worship is not commanded in the Bible. I think I mentioned that in the episode as well. Um, but I don't, I don't think a Christian has to meet on Sunday. It just seems to be something they began doing and something that carried into the early church uh, after the first century as well. Uh, as far as the Isaiah 66 passage you included, this is, um, let's start in verse 21. Uh, the, the, the one you sent, the one you quoted here is, um, uh, well, you said, the Bible even says that in the new earth, God's people will come before and worship from one Sabbath to another. And that's Isaiah 66, 23. I would disagree a little bit with the interpretation. I think when you back up a little bit and start at verse 21, uh, God says, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And then there's a quote here in 22 and 23, uh, or not a quote, but a little section where it says, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. So it looks like he's taking this idea um, of the new heavens and the new earth uh, remaining before him, and he's taking that and he's comparing it to what the offspring in the name of the faithful priest will do, where he says, just like the new heavens and the new earth remain before me, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall, uh, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be uh, an abhorrence to all flesh. I also think you have him using symbolic language when he says from Sabbath to Sabbath and from new moon to new moon, because when you look at Revelation 22, which I also think is somewhat symbolic, um, when you go to, to verse 4, uh, Revelation 22 verse 4, this is describing the new Eden, the new city that God's going to be bringing, the new earth. And he says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So it seems like there won't be there won't be a night 
there won't, it doesn't explicitly say there won't be a moon, but there's not going to be a night, there's not going to be sun, uh, and there's not going to be any need for any sort of light because God is going to provide the light. So it seems like in, in Isaiah 66, he's using symbolic language here to describe uh, periods of time or basically every day. Um, so I don't know if I'd, if I would go as far as to be on board with saying that it means that there's going to be a Sabbath, especially when you consider the new earth is God's ultimate Sabbath. Every every moment will be the Sabbath. Um, not that there will necessarily be days because we're going to be in eternity, but uh, we'll be entering into the ultimate Sabbath rest like we see in Hebrews, where it's like we're, we're going to be entering rest completely. There's not going to be... Um, I don't think there'll be any need for a Sabbath day once we once we enter the presence of Christ into the true Sabbath. Um, also, you reference—I mean, I just touched on this a little bit. I missed this, but um, you had you had mentioned John twenty nineteen, where you said um, when you referred to the to Sunday being the New Testament pattern, and you said you didn't think it was correct. You said that when the apostles met on Sunday night after Jesus' resurrection, it was them hiding for fear of the Jews, and then you quoted. Uh, John 2019, and then you said if John 2019 is about them hiding for fear of the Jews, then Paul's meeting with the believers uh, in Acts may be the same thing because it is also a night meeting, and Paul preached until midnight because he was leaving uh, the next day. I don't. I also would disagree with that. I think when you go to John 2019, they are meeting on the first day, and that might be the reason. Might be because they're hiding. Um, but uh, if we start at John 2019, it says on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, of course, this isn't them meeting on Sunday to worship. Um, so here it's just describing that they're that they're in the room waiting on the first day of the week or hiding with the doors locked because they're afraid, but they're not worshiping on this day. I think here they're just hiding because they think Jesus is dead and gone forever. Um, this is the chapter where Jesus raises, he goes to the women, and then he comes to the apostles here uh, in the same paragraph. It, it's the very next verse. It says, um, or no, the, I, I did read that, that Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Uh, so I don't think their meeting here is a day of worship. I think that it's just describing uh, them being together by coincidence on the first day of the week, because this is when Jesus rose and they thought he was dead. So I don't think there's any link uh, between John 20 and the meeting in Acts 20 in verse 7 when it says uh, that they're there on the first day of the week together to break bread. So it says the reason, yeah, the reason in John 20 uh, that they're together is because they're terrified. And by the way, the women are out there, um, and the women the women were there at the cross. They went to bring Jesus uh, herbs on the on the Saturday, and then on Sunday they they go and they're the first ones there when he raises from the dead. So good job there. While the men are all hiding, the apostles are all hiding in the room. But I don't think there's a link because while the reason they're in the room on the first day is that they're hiding in Acts twenty, the purpose seems to be to break bread. Um, and Paul, of course, comes and and speaks to them. So I don't think that that there's any link between John 20 and Acts 20. As far as uh, keeping the Sabbath to recognize God um, as creator, as a deliverer from slavery, from sin, which I agree with, by the way, I think um, that is one of the primary reasons as well for the Sabbath, is to remind us that God had freed us from slavery in Egypt. Um, but the way I would look at this, again, is in the big picture, obviously what God does in freeing them from Egypt is greater than them being slaves in Egypt. 
Of course, okay, we would all agree with that. But now, I think Jesus comes and what he does is greater than the Exodus. Because now Jesus comes and he is the, he's the greater Moses, which I think is a big part of the whole Sermon on the Mount with Matthew 5.17 and everything. He's now the greater Moses. He's bringing in a new covenant. He's perfect. Um, when you look at Moses, he brings the people out of Egypt. He crosses the Red Sea. Uh, he, he brings them into the new land. Well, Jesus comes and does this in a more full way. So what Jesus does is, and I think you mentioned this and agree with it here, of course, uh, but Jesus takes us in on an exodus out of sin. He takes us and he removes the punishment from sin. He crosses, right after he gets baptized, he crosses the, uh, the Jordan River, and he's bringing us into the new promised land. So I think that this is actually, even in terms of uh, the exodus, Jesus... Jesus performed a greater exodus, and the exodus was really a picture of this, because now his people are being brought into eternal paradise, into eternal rest, uh, and so I think even what he's doing here is greater than um, than the exodus, which was even a foreshadowing of this. So when they were given the Sabbath command after after the exodus, of course, this would make them reflect on God uh, and how good he is for freeing them from slavery, but now I think we do this by ref- ref- uh Duh, duh, duh. I think we do this by reflecting in how good Christ is and how sufficient Christ is to save us from our sin um, and to save us from not just the the life of uncertainty, not just a life of being under the law, but a life where we're freed from the punishment of sin and instead we'll be brought into the eternal paradise of God uh, forever. And then as far as uh, you mentioning that Jesus had died on Friday, the preparation day, and then rested on Saturday, which is a Sabbath, uh, then raising from the dead on Sunday. I, I, th- I actually think that's an interesting observation, but it would still only show that Jesus is keeping all of the law until he ultimately fulfills it, uh, which maybe that's the last thing rather than when he says it is finished or an already not yet kind of thing. Um, but it's still, it's just like, you know, in in Jesus' baptism, he doesn't have to be baptized to be saved. I mean, there, Jesus is pure. Jesus is perfect. He's, he's truly God and truly man. Um, but he gets baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. So he still does it, even though, um, even though, of course, he is perfect and doesn't have to be cleansed of any sin, even symbolically. He still goes through all of the steps. So I think that would fall into uh, that category. And then the, some of the other questions, I think um, you you asked before I did the other two episodes on the law, so I think that probably would have covered part of that. Even if you don't agree, you'd at least know my opinion on as far as being under the law uh, and what exactly that means. But if you haven't listened to those, check those out because I'd like to know what you think of those two. Um, and obviously, you would, you would get to know my opinion on that a little better. Um, but... I hope that answers some of these. I, I hope I didn't miss anything besides the law stuff, which I think I, I covered those questions in those episodes. I hope I didn't miss anything else. If I did, remind me. Um, let me just double check. But anyway, that just just to wrap that up, if you are keeping the Sabbath on Saturday, um, and obviously you, you said you don't think it's a salvation issue, we're saved by faith, then I think that's great. I think it's good that you do that. And I wouldn't tell you not to do that. We would have a difference of opinion because I don't believe that you have to do it, or that there's a law telling us that we still have to do it. Um, but I think it's great that you do it, and especially if it helps you to reflect on the character of God and what God's done for us, I would not try to take that away from you. I would just try to suggest that, um, you know, as, as a view I hold would say, that we're, not, we're no longer under the law of Moses, so we don't have to hold that. But uh, I appreciate the, the thought-out question. I appreciate it being um, not only thoughtful, but also polite and respectful because it's always nice when people 
ask questions respectfully instead of just saying, I disagree, you're wrong. So thank you for that. Uh, The next question says, Nick, Jesus says we don't have to follow the law to enter the kingdom of heaven, but I don't think, but I don't think he says we shouldn't follow the law. There are seven Levitical feasts, but only four have been fulfilled. We have three more coming and most Christians haven't been to a single dress rehearsal. Uh, I don't think Paul is saying that we don't have to follow the law. I think he is saying we can't follow the law in order to receive salvation. Um, explain to me how Matthew 5.19 says that Yahweh doesn't care if we follow the law. I could write a whole deep dive on the subject if I was at a keyboard instead of poking my phone. Uh, hugs from Phoenix, where at 115 degrees, giving hugs is a real sacrifice. Uh, don't touch me, I am hot and sweaty. And then you added, <laughs> that's funny, you added Matthew 5.19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them... Uh, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So let me start with that verse. This, again, a question, I was a little behind, so this is a question that came before I did the episodes on the law. So check those out if you haven't, because you'll see the, my opinion in detail. Um, but just briefly, keep in mind that he's, he's talking to the Pharisees here in Matthew 5, uh, especially in verses like 17 through 20, um, or 16 through 20. He's talking to the Pharisees and he's contrasting himself with the Pharisees because the Pharisees are not those who actually teach and do the law. Um, they're hypocritical. They choose what they'll teach or teach and not teach. They'll choose what they'll keep and not keep. And so they do have, of course, some religious authority, but they're not using it properly. They're using it hypocritically. And so Jesus is saying, listen, they relax the law. They don't keep the commandments. I'm here to keep every single one of them and fulfill them. And then he goes in, in detail and describes how he'll do that. He'll say, yeah, they might say that uh, they've never murdered because they've never gone out and, and stabbed somebody. But if you've even been angry at somebody unjustly, you've committed murder in your heart, which Jesus has never done. Uh, they might not go and cheat on their wife and take a second wife or something like that. But if you have even looked at a woman or a man with adulterous thoughts, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And Jesus had never done that. So he's contrasting himself with the Pharisees and he's talking about how he is the one who is not only going to come and not abolish the law, meaning not break any of the law, not destroy the law. Uh, he is going to be the one who comes and keeps the law and completely fulfills the law. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2.15, he's going to set the law aside. Uh, So go and and listen to those episodes if you haven't, uh, because they'll help, I think, explain a lot of this. Like I said, you sent this question before I did those episodes. I think you sent this right after the Sabbath episode, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe this was after an episode I did on theonomy or something like that. I don't remember. Uh, But anyway, yeah, check those out if you haven't. Um, and then I do agree here where you said, I partially agree. You said, I don't think Paul is saying we don't have to follow the law. I think he is saying we can't follow the law in order to receive salvation. I would agree with that second part. We cannot obtain salvation through the law, but I think it means more than that. I think it actually does mean that Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses along with the old covenant. And now it has been set aside and the new covenant is here. And in the new covenant, we're under the law of Christ. So it's not that we get to live lawlessly now. Um, everything is lawful, but not everything is profitable. So the question is, what is profitable? Uh, what honors God? What can I do to love God and love my neighbor? Um, and if we're doing that, then the whole reason for the law is that it's it's an extension of these two eternal commandments. Uh, everything else is an extension from these, which is why he says that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Um, so check those episodes out, and I appreciate the question. Uh, I think you've sent a question before too, so thank you. 
Um, I, I like when people actually listen and challenge things. And we're not just here to agree with everything all the time, okay? But, well, I hope you do. But um, if there's a difference of opinion, I'd like to know. So thank you so much uh, for sending that. And hopefully those episodes will be helpful in, in answering that. And then the last question um, is about the true Sabbath rest being in Christ. Uh, says, how would you practically describe that to someone who doesn't get it? Um, also, was a Sabbath only symbolic for the people of Israel, or did it also have practical benefits along with holding symbolism? I tend to think it has practical benefits and symbolic meaning in the Old and New Testament. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, the first part is one that I tend to struggle with the most. What does it mean to find my rest in Christ? Because it seems like it can't mean that I don't need to try to resist my sinful desires and do what God wants me to do. Uh, and that does feel like work. And it also doesn't seem like it is probably more than just an intellectual understanding of my justification before God. How does my rest in Christ actually follow uh, like what the rest of the Sabbath was intended to give to God's people for thousands of years in the Old Testament? And how does one... And how does one, uh, or I'm sorry, how does who Jesus is impact the New Testament's expansion on rest for us today? Uh, and the last part was, is the Old Testament Sabbath pr only pra uh, practice only symbolic? Is it just symbolic or is there anything more? Uh, the first part, not that I'm one who's perfect on this, uh, but I like to think of rest in Christ as the already not yet Um because it is both of those things. It's like when we think about what eternity is with God, regardless of your view on where or what heaven is, when we think about eternity with God, we think of it as something filled with joy. We think of it as something where every tear will be wiped away. Um, we think of it as being in the presence of the one who is entirely good, who every good thing we've ever had comes from. So the way I look at it is, uh, Again, I'm not perfect at this, but thinking of it as an already not yet kind of thing, entering the rest of Christ, uh, it's it's almost kind of like when you know you're going on vacation and you're kind of like looking forward to vacation, even though you're not there yet, because you know how fun vacation is going to be uh, and how restful vacation is going to be and anything else. And so you're already like, you're already thinking about it and you know that you're not there yet, but when you are there, it's going to be great. Um in a sense, I think that's kind of what I'm thinking of this as, where uh, obviously we're not in heaven yet. We haven't actually entered Christ's ultimate rest because we're still here on earth. We're still working. Um, Paul says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So, of course, we're going to gain something when we die. Something's going to be different. Um, but I think that we can rest in looking forward to it. And I think that um, as far as uh, it being something more than recognizing the justification before God, I would agree. I think recognizing our justification before God would probably be like the beginning of rest. It's like the entrance to rest. So I don't think that that um, is everything that we think about. I also don't think it's just not trying, trying not to resist sinful desires, though, of course, we have to do that. Um, I think that maybe, again, what's helpful for me is to think, of course, I have this spirit versus flesh battle going on all the time. Uh, I'm trying to do the right thing while also trying to resist the wrong thing. And sometimes I fail, but I have this constant battle going on all the time. And of course that feels like work um, because it is work. It's, it's difficult. Uh, since we're not in heaven yet, we still have this constant moral battle. But I think what's helpful to me is to think that there's a difference between guilt and conviction. 
Uh, and so when I think about this, it's like my guilt has all been taken by Christ. I don't have any guilt in like an ultimate sense, uh, in the sense that I'm going to stand before God one day and I'm going to have guilt. It's all going to be gone. So it's like in an already not yet sense, what's helpful for me to think about is that my guilt is is gone. The, the difference between guilt and a conviction is that you can do something about a conviction. You can't necessarily do anything about guilt. So it's like when I'm trying to keep... Uh, keep in line with what God wants me to do when I'm trying to obey Christ and I'm failing at it or at least partially failing at it even uh, I can recognize that guilt doesn't have to be part of the situation I mean if you're talking about guilt as in like oh I said something mean to this person then I felt guilty about it I think that's different than guilt in an ultimate sense where you're actually guilty of something in an ultimate sense because God has taken the whole penalty from us for sin, the whole punishment for guilt. Um, he's taken all of that from us. And now I think the rest is, is not just, of course, we're not there yet. We're not in heaven with Christ yet, though we are in Christ. Um, but we get to know that our guilt is gone. A conviction is something we can do something about. A conviction is when God's saying, I want you to stop doing this thing and do this thing because it's going to make you more like me and it's going to make you know me better, which is better than anything. Uh, and so that's that, I think, is what's ultimately helpful to me is the idea that we no longer carry guilt before God. And I'm trying to be practical here because, of course, on a theological level, anybody could describe this stuff and say, well, of course, you know, we're going to enter Christ's rest ultimately one day, though we're not there yet. Um, you know, you have the citizens of heaven idea. It's like we're citizens of heaven, but we still have to suffer here. We still have to work here. Um, but I think on a practical level, that's at least what's helpful for me is to know that I don't have guilt, to know that I won't have to face uh, the wrath of God, to know that all of that is done. Like I said, we can't do anything about guilt, but somebody else did. Um, Christ did. And so I think that's what I can find rest in, even when I'm having to deal with something difficult, uh, even when I'm having to deal with failures, even when I'm having to try to uh, keep in line with what God wants, even when I really don't want to. I think that's what's been most helpful for me personally. I touched on this a little bit earlier, but if we think about uh, the Sabbath being partly intended to remind people of what God has done and freeing them from slavery, I think it is like, if you think about it as Christ ultimately freeing us from the slavery of sin, from the slavery of guilt, from the slavery of all these things that have held us down and separated us from God, even if we don't fully feel and recognize in front of us the reality of this, the reality is there and we just haven't seen the full reality yet. Uh, and to think that one day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to be in the presence of God, I'm going to see God's face, I'm going to I'm going to know what it's like to be completely without sin. Um, knowing these things are coming, uh, knowing that I'm going to receive these things, though I haven't experienced that in full yet, I think even though we have to work physically and morally and uh, fill in the blank with whatever else, we don't have to work in that sense. Um, and I think that's why 11, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 is one of my favorite passages, that we will find rest for our souls. So again, uh, I don't have a perfect answer, but that's what helps me in trying to make this a reality, just like in the Old Testament, um, the Sabbath was, of course, made a reality by not doing any work on that day. And I, again, I still think that's a good idea to do. I think you 
you should be doing that. I think it's good for your family, for your brain, for your well-being, for everything. But I don't think we're commanded to do it by law. And I get the impression that Paul probably didn't take a whole lot of Sabbath days off or days off in general. Uh, but anyway, I hope that's helpful. I hope this whole thing has been helpful. It's been a lot of fun for me. It went by quick, even though it's almost an hour here. But um, thank you so much for those of you who have sent in questions. If you have further questions on the questions I answered or any other question, send them to information at apologetics.org for our Q&A at the end of next month on the last Friday of the month. So send them to information at apologetics.org. And otherwise, I hope you have a blessed weekend and we'll see you next Monday night at 6 p.m. for the last part for now of the series on laying down the law.